Today is obviously sexuality. Um, I've read a lot of books. I've studied a bunch. I've taken classes at a Western Seminary where I'm going right now. And all of them have said this. When you prepare a sermon, you have to do a really good introduction. You got to hook people. You have to give them a reason why they should continue to listen to you, a reason why you have something to offer them. Today, I don't have to do an introduction. Here's my introduction. Sex. Intro over. All right? That's it. <laughs> Pretty much. And here's why. We live in the most hyper-sexualized world and culture ever in existence. There's no doubt about it. Like, it is everywhere. And I'm going to give you an example of how things have just changed in the last 10 years. And I'm going to show you some pictures. And these pictures, they're not from the Reverend I Hate Society. They're from the San Francisco Chronicle. So the San Francisco Chronicle looked and watched over just the last decade and said, look at these images that used to look like that, this, and now they look like this. But these images are for kids, preschool kids. Because I couldn't show you how images have changed for adults. We'd be scandalized by that. So the San Francisco Chronicle said, look at this, what we are now marketing to our kids when they're very young. Look how it's changed in just 10 years. So if we have those images, you might have to turn off the lights. There we go. So this is the first one. This is what, is this strawberry shortcake? Okay. This is what she, cute, you know, little teddy bear, um, fully clothed. Now, what does this look like? Beauty pageant, right? Doesn't look cute, snuggly, happy. Looks beauty pageant posed. Okay, that's image one. Image two. Okay. You have My Little Pony. Um, they're all happy. They're cuddly. They're, you know, very, very cute. What do you see over here? A lot of skin. Tiny miniskirts, right? Tiny little waists. Very sexualized. And so they just point out everything. Like the hair looks like it's, uh, you just came out of a, um, a beauty salon for people that are headed to whatever, Vegas, you know. It's very, very scandalous. Really, if you think about it, this is being marketed to three and four-year-olds. This is what you're supposed to look like. Little mini skirts show lots of leg, uh, have tiny little waist, all this kind of stuff. Okay, next one. Okay, this one just cracked me up. Because you've got uh, Clue, which is like the boringest game in the world, right? And, and up there you get boring, right? You've got these stodgy old, even the lady, she's like in a pantsuit, right? <laughs> That's Clue. But what do you have here? Discover the secret. Now, now as you rediscover the secret, where does your eye go? Oh, what's this? Hmm, maybe I want to buy that, but, you know, okay. All right, next one. This is the last one. They had more. So this is, you know, what is this, Candyland? Okay, this is 10 years ago, Queen Frosting. What does she look like now? Very different. Now, this is what we're marketing. You can turn that off and turn the lights on. So it, it's, 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 it's pervasive now. It's just not like to adults or big people. It's, we're marketing now sexual ideas and images to kids, and here's why. As a society in America, we have decided that sex is like steak. Here's what I mean by that. Sex is just another body appetite. And if you're hungry right now for a hamburger and you decide, you know what, I want to go after church and I want to get something to eat. And so you go and you get your hamburger made just the way that you want it with whatever, medium rare and uh, hold the pickles, whatever. No one's going to be like, oh, that's wrong. 
No, and say, hey, that's fine. You had a body appetite, and you satisfied that body appetite in the manner that you wanted to satisfy that body appetite. Right? Other people might go to Chinese or Thai food. or It's okay. You're okay. However you want to satisfy your body appetite of hunger, go ahead. All right? So our culture has said, fundamentally, sex is the same thing. Sex is just another body appetite. And you should be able to satisfy that body appetite in whatever manner you like or want. All right? So that's culturally where we're at right now. And so you can see that everywhere. You can see that on billboards. You can see it as we market to little kids. It's just, hey, here, here's the way it is. So there was this VH1 segment on sex where they were looking at it and our culture, and they decided of all people to interview, they grabbed Woody Allen. Now, to me, I'm just like, oh, man, that's catastrophe number one. So they grabbed Woody Allen, and they asked Woody Allen this question. This is the one that got me. They said, Woody Allen... What do you think about people saving themselves for marriage sexually? And Woody Allen replied and he said, that would be like getting your driver's license without ever having a learner's permit. Now, getting advice sexually from Woody Allen is nutty to me, right? Because he marries his wife's adopted daughter, whom he raised for 10 years and then is 30 years his younger. I mean, if sex requires a license, Woody Allen should have his revoked, right? But what, the reason why they grab Woody Allen is because Woody Allen now represents this whole idea that sex is like a steak. Get it any way you want. Whether it's your 18-year-old adopted daughter, does not matter anymore. Sex is like a steak. So that's our culture. That's what we face. That's what you, you get entertained by. That's what you see on billboards. That is our culture. Now, the Bible has something to say about that. And so the Bible, here's, the, the Bible is balanced when it comes to sex, okay? And if I'm looking for a way to define sexuality in the Bible, here's what it is. When it comes to sex, here's what it is. It is whole body plus whole life commitment. That's sex. And it's only inside of that context does the Bible say, this works well, and the Bible is unblushing when it talks about a man and a woman enjoying whole body, whole life commitment. It's unblushing in it. And I think that's very important because kids, and this is the way I left church, kids can get this idea from church that like sex is dirty, so make sure you save it for someone you really love, which is kind of a nutty thing, right? Like, oh, that doesn't make sense, Right. And, I, and we have to back that up because the Bible says, man, sex is super good. It's super good, right? This, the, the Bible's unblushing. So I'm going to read for you. I'm just going to read them. I might make a slight comment on them, but I'm going to read you some texts in the Bible that talk about sex in a very unblushing way. So you can turn to the Song of Solomon, um, chapter 7. And here's what we're getting in the Song of Solomon. We're getting a husband and a wife married and they're talking about each other, okay? So we'll go first the guy. Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 7. This is a husband looking at his wife, and this is what he says about her. Song of Solomon, 7, 7. Your stature 
is like a palm tree. Probably something there that's contextual or in culture because we probably don't do that today. Your statue is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. What did that husband just say to his wife? You can figure that out, I think. All right? It's blatant. All right? Listen to the gal talking about her husband, chapter 5, verse 11. She looks at her husband. Her head, his head, is the finest gold. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. Verse 13, his lips are lilies dripping liquid myrrh. Verse 14, his body is polished ivory. Make a note of that, we're coming back to this. Bedecked with sapphires. Verse 16, his mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. So this is a woman looking at her husband and saying these things, okay? In verse 14, there's this little text that says, his body is polished ivory. Now, I've taken some language courses, and I do really good in language. It's, a language is like math. It's a formula. I'm an engineer. So formulas, I get that. So I've aced Hebrew. I've aced Greek. Uh, enjoy it. But when I saw this, I kind of looked at it a little bit, and I thought, I, I can't say that unless I have backing. So I went to Hebrew scholars. And you'll see at the bottom, there's a note. It's like, mm, the meaning of this Hebrew word is uncertain. The ESV translators, here's what they did. They blushed. Because it's pretty clear what this is. It's literally... His body is a polished ivory tusk. Now, when you think about the anatomy of a man, what's she talking about? Yeah, okay? The Bible's unblushing. I'm not unblushing. The Bible is unblushing. That's what she's looking at. It's very, very descriptive, okay? So the Bible just it says sex is super good. And you might be thinking, oh, come on, Matt. You're just being 2016. People didn't talk this way years ago. I challenge you to study the Puritans. The Puritans, here's what they, they get a bad rap. The Puritans were this. They said, we want the church to be biblical. And they saturated themselves in scripture. They studied it. They loved it. And they said, we want the church to conform to what we see in the Bible. They were adamant about it. It's why today we still study their sermons because they're so scriptural. Well, here's the thing. They talked a ton about sex. And they said, sex is super good. I'll give you an example. There's this guy named Edmund Morgan. He was a professor at Yale University. He was a professor of American studies. So he studied the Puritans. He found these sermons, all these sermons on sex. He wanted to publish them in the Yale Review in the 1950s, right? Guess what the Yale Review said? Those are too racy. You've got a left-leaning liberal East Coast University, their newspaper saying, oh, we can't publish those. Those are too racy. That's how the Puritans were because they studied the Bible and they said, man, God's given us this delightful gift called sex. The Puritans, they would do this. If a woman was not being satisfied by her husband because they so strongly believed in 1 Corinthians 7, they were adamant about that. If that husband was not satisfying his wife, sexually, she would come to the elders and the elders would discipline that 
man and tell him, hey, you got to do this. If he did not, they would take that man and put him in stocks in the public square. I mean, could you imagine that? What's he in for? Didn't satisfy his wife. Oh, another one. Man, that's a bummer. I mean, that is nutty. I mean, that's just like, that's Puritans because they realize the Bible has given us this delightful gift and it's unblushing on these things. So number one, you got to get this. The Bible just says, man, sex is super good. Super good. But here's the balance. The number two thing the Bible says is sex is sacred, okay? So turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. These are the words of Jesus now. We'll be jumping in this book because it's just brilliant. So Jesus talks about this, the sacredness of sex. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Listen to this and listen to the context of this because very often we'll rip out a couple of these verses out of its true context and we'll say, yeah, but, but the context of the part that we know very well is actually the misuse of sex. Verse 27, Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Jesus here links lust, adultery, the misuse of sex, he links it with hell. Notice that? If you don't do this right, the end result will be hell. If you misuse this delightful gift that is super good, it will lead you to hell. Okay? Listen to me. Sex will not just be fun. It will take you to a location that is either heavenly or hell. It will never just be fun. It's going to take you either to heaven or it's going to take you to hell. And I'm speaking figuratively there. Your life will be, man, heavenly, this is awesome, or your life will be hellish. And here's why. God designed sex for this. He designed sex for this. He designed sex to say, I belong to you. I give up my freedom. I give up my autonomous life. And now I belong to you whole body, whole life commitment. I belong to you. I don't make decisions on my own anymore. I don't live for myself anymore. I've given that to you. I live for you. That's what it's supposed to be. When that happens, when I am whole body, whole life committed to somebody, oh, it's heavenly because I'm vulnerable and I'm open and I'm safe. 
and it's wonderful, and I grow, and I know somebody intimately on all levels, and it leads to heaven, 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 heaven. That's why the Puritans were so totally committed to sex because they realized what happens in sex, 1 Corinthians 7, is there's like this recommitting, this recovenant, this remarriage every time you do it, that there is this whole body, whole life commitment that happens in it, so we are saying you have to be committed to this thing. That's why they're so adamant about it, all right? But outside, if you take that same delightful gift and you take it outside of that covenant, something breaks. We can feel it break. Perhaps you've been in a relationship. What the other person has said, you know what? You mean the world to me. And then you say, well, then why won't you marry me? And then they say, because it gets complicated. No, it didn't get complicated. It means I really don't mean the world to you because you're not whole body, whole life committed to me. And you can feel the hell in yourself. That hurts. Ouch. Because when you are not whole body, whole life committed, you are actually committing violence against yourself. Read 1 Corinthians 6. Read Proverbs. Because you actually dismember yourself. Instead of being whole body, whole life committed, you're just one side of this, and you're divorcing the other part of your life every single time. You're actually cleaving yourself. You're doing violence to yourself. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, sex outside of marriage is like vomiting. You want to taste the food, but you don't want that food to become part of you, so you vomit it back up. And we all know bulimia causes huge issues with people. Huge issues. Sex outside of marriage is just like that. You're saying, I, don't, I want to taste, but I, won't, I don't want you to become a part of me. I don't want to lose my freedom. I don't want to give to you in those ways. And Jesus says, that leads to hell. And I've done the science before. We did this Maybe it was a year ago, Song of Solomon, where I just said, look at the science now. Since the sexual revolution, overall female happiness has been on this decrease every single year. Because we, in the sexual revolution, told women, you can act just like men. You can be a slob. That's what really what we said. And I talked about that. We went at length. I've talked about the books that show that, that the more partners you have, the more impossible it becomes to really whole life commit to somebody. Because there's this cleaving and there's this scarring and it's hard and difficult. How much hell is caused in our world because of the misuse of sex? Huge to me. Huge. All right? Jesus here is really saying there's two different ways to relate to somebody. You can relate in love, whole body, whole life commitment, or through lust. Here's the difference between them. Lust, here's what lust does. Lust wants anyone. You walk around hungry, lusting after any woman, any man. Love wants a covenant. Love says, I want a particular man, a particular woman, the right one. That's love. Love leads to trust. Lust leads to games and envy and uncertainty and anxiety and stress. Love desires to be vulnerable and known. I want him, I want her to know everything about me. I don't want to hide anything. I want to pour myself into her. I want her to pour herself into me. I want to be open and vulnerable. That's what love does. Lust does this. Lust says, I want you to only see my Facebook mask. 
I don't want you to know anything else beyond this mask that I want to put up because then you might not accept me. That's lust. You can see, I think, clearly one of those leads to this incredible thing that God has for us. The two become one, and the other one leads to this continual dismembering of the body from the life that leads to hell. That's why Jesus twice says hell. So Jesus, sex is super good, but listen, listen, it's sacred, and you have to protect it. And here is where Jesus gives some of his most radical texts. He just says, listen, on the subject of sex and adultery, if your eye offends you, what do you do? Poke that thing out. Because the hell that it will produce in you is not worth that eye. If your hand offends you when it comes to this issue, what do you do? When you cut that thing off. Because the hell that it will produce in you is not worth a hand. That's how radical Jesus is on this subject. It's, it's, it's radical. It's like this. Sex is like a nuclear reaction. A nuclear, re- nuclear reaction inside the concrete commitment of a nuclear reactor, guess what it does? Man, it charges your iPhone. It turns on the lights in here. It heats up a room, right? It cooks food like trout almondy in a nice Dijon mustard sauce, nothing better. It does all these great things for you inside the concrete confines, commitment of a reactor. But you take that same reaction, nuclear reaction, and you remove the concrete confines, what is it? It's a bomb that leads to hell on earth. That's what sex is like. Inside this thing, delightful, wonderful, useful, brilliant. Outside of it, destructive, be on belief. So the Bible is balanced. Sex, super good, but sacred and must be protected. So I want to try to apply this now to married people and to singles. That should cover everybody in here. So first, if you're married, thinking about getting married, know somebody who's married, pay attention to this. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 4. I'll back up one verse to get the context, but verse 4 is where we're going to center. Verse 3 says this. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Verse 4. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. If you're reading an ESV Bible, that's what I read. I think it has done a good job for the most part. There is a note on verse 4. When it says that each one of you know how to control his own body, there's a note. I'll read it for you. Or how to take a wife for himself. I believe that's the correct translation. That verse 4 should be like this. I want each of you to know how to take a wife for himself in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lusts like the Gentiles who do not know God. I believe this text is teaching there are two ways you can get married. 
You can get married like a Christian, and it's honor and holiness, or you can get married like a pagan, where it's lost. And if you get married like a Christian, it's heaven. But if you get married like a pagan, lusts, it's what Jesus warned about. It's hell, okay? And I know people that have got married for the wrong reasons. And I do counseling with them. And I'll tell you, I don't know of a harder, more hellish condition than a marriage that's not right. It is hugely hard, okay? So I'll give you some examples. There are ways to get married that are wrong. They're pagan. They're Gentile-ish. Okay, I'll give you, I've got a bunch of them. I'll give you a few. Some people get married, I call it the prima donna marriage. You know what a prima donna is? It's someone that we think they're like God. So there are marriages where it's like, they're God. Right? I've always wanted to be loved, and now I've finally, finally found somebody to love me. That person becomes your salvation, and you worship them. Okay? Those relationships, they get weird. They're really needy. They're really clingy. There's this dependency on them, and there's this expectation because they're God, they better be perfect. So they better look this certain way. They better not ever have a bad day. They better not ever say a mean word to me. There's this expectation on them that's so high, it's impossible. And it leads to jealousy and possessiveness and demanding, and it's hell. The prima donna marriage. Second one, I call it the physical marriage. It's a pagan I want him, I want her based solely on what they can give me. Their looks, their reputation, their money, their power, something like that. It's not, I'm getting married because I want him, I want her to be my best friend. I want to grow in my admiring of the imago Dei in that person. I want to grow in how I know them and how open I can be with somebody on earth. That's what I want. It's all physical. And eventually what will happen is this. Someone else will come along that is more physically appealing to you. And all of a sudden, the old relationship is hell and you want something new. That's a physical marriage. And the last one I'll talk about is called the project marriage. If you see, we've all dealt with those, right? <laughs> it's they need me. They need me. They're messed up. They got all these issues. So I'm going to help them. Right? Oh, my goodness. So terrible. Because it might work for a while and it might fulfill you for a while. But eventually, you know what? That person's not going to change. Because it's real nice to have somebody take care of you and to cook for you and to clean for you and pay all the bills for you and do all that kind of stuff. But eventually, it's not a marriage. It's parenting. And you just get tired of it. This person's never grown up. Right? And it becomes Hell, I go on and on. People get married for emotional voids, right? Or she made me feel like a man. He made me feel like a woman. You know, that's the number one thing I get when it comes to adultery. But she made me feel like a man. He made me feel like a woman again. There's all these, it's the passions of the Gentiles, all right? No good, no good. This is so important now. I begin premarital counseling now by doing this. The guy comes in, and here's what I know. He's, he's proposed, she's agreed, and the men come in, and typically this is what they think. She's perfect. All the men come in, she's just perfect for me. I finally found the perfect one. Here's what I have to do to the guy. I have to let him down. No, she's not God. Sorry. 
So that's where they do the guy. The gals, they come in, it's totally different. The gals come in and they realize the guy's not perfect. They're smarter there, but here's their mistake. They think, I can fix him, right? I can fix him. I have to say, no, you cannot. Jesus, the church, community, yes, you by yourself, you will never fix him. So I got to let both of them down to have the right platform to even begin this thing now. Because we come in with these crazy, they're, they're pagan marriages is what they are. So the Bible here says, I want you to get married for holiness and for honor, okay? Now, we've done a lot of holiness. I've said you don't get married for happiness, you get married for holiness. But if you go for holiness, you get happiness. Okay, I've done that one. I'll do it again at some point. I want to focus on this honor. Uh, godly marriage, sacred marriage, you're getting married for honor. What does that mean? Here's what honor means. Honor is, number one, concrete. Honor is, I am honoring concretely my word. There's a trend right now in weddings, and I don't like it, where everybody wants to write their own vows. And the vows that they write are like this. I really, really, really like you. And I really, really, really want to spend the rest of life for you. And I'm so glad we're here. It's all like enlightenment and individualistic. And I don't cry at weddings, but sometimes I hear these, I just want to cry. Like you've missed what marriage is. I like this one. For better, for worse, for rich, for poor. And I don't say, um, as long as we both shall live. I say until death separates us. I want death in there. Till I get hit by a semi or cancer takes me. Right? Here's why. Charity and I celebrated our 16th wedding anniversary, not this Friday, two Fridays ago. So we went out to eat, and when we went out to eat, I get married in 2000, you know why? Because I can figure out when I, how long I've been married like that. <laughs> January 2000, let's see here. There's only 15 days where I can be wrong, right? <laughs> Other than that, it's like 16, 17, 18. So that's a side note. If you got married in 2000, brilliant. So we go out. We're sitting there, we're, we're at a restaurant. The waitress comes up, she finds out we're on our anniversary, and she said this, 16 years, wow, what's your secret? You know what I said? I promised. I promised for better, for worse, for rich, for poor. There is no other option, period. She just looked at me and goes, I'll get your appetizer now. Like, oh, I was not expecting that. <laughs> That's marriage. Concrete. It's only inside of that commitment that you can be safe to be vulnerable. That you can be safe to say, hey, here's how I feel. I'm not going to disappoint you because you think I'm God. It's only in there. That's marriage. For better. For worse. For rich or poor. No matter what, I promised. That's honor. I'm honoring the covenant I made before God, period. Number one. Number two, honor is this. Honor is respecting your spouse's position in your life. Respecting that position. It's, they're not there as my toy. They're not there to make me happy. They are there as the one that God has said, she or he is the completer for you. The two shall become one. 
They are the imago Dei, the very image and reflection of God Almighty. That is who they are, and I respect that. It's honoring the power of their words. The book of Proverbs is full of this, that the wife has this power with her words, that the husband has this power with his words, that the whole world can tell you you're ugly, but if your spouse, the one you are naked and vulnerable with and able to be totally open with, if your spouse says you're beautiful, you become beautiful. That's how powerful those words are. It's honor. Pagan marriages are lustful and lead to hell. Godly marriages are heavenly and there's honor and there's holiness and they become something more beautiful every single day. Honor your marriage. Honor it. Singles. Perhaps you're single in here. Jesus says you guard this sacred gift violently because of the violence it will do to you. You guard it. How do I guard that? Or perhaps you're single in here and you have not guarded it. What do I do? Okay, one text for you. It's Titus 2, verse 11. This is one of my brilliant verses in the Bible. I use it all the time for myself. I use it in counseling all the time. Okay, listen to this. Titus 2, 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The word passion there is epithemia. It's the same word that Jesus uses for lust in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. Training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Did you hear that? What trains us? What trains us to guard our worldly passions, those lusts? Is it, oh no, I might get an STD? That's not in there. I need accountability? That's not in there. I'm going to feel shame? Not in there. I'm going to feel guilty? Not in there. New Year's resolution? How's that working for you? What trains us? If I give in, God will get mad at me. If I get in, I'll give in, I'll get mad at myself. I'll feel miserable in the morning. That's not in there. What's in there? What trains us? Titus 2, 11. The grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce worldly passions. What trains us? According to Titus 2, 11 and 12, it's God's grace. It's not repercussions. It's not I'll hate myself. It's none of those things. God's grace trains us. If God, the one that we are naked and open before, the one who knows everything about us, even more than your spouse ever will, he knows the very thoughts of your mind. If that God, the one you are truly naked and open before, if he says to you, I love you and I accept you, if you know that kind of acceptance and that kind of love, that there is now, therefore, no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. If you know that kind of love, here's what happens to you. You get full and protected. The sacredness of sex gets protected because you're already full. That's what trains us. 
that God has covenanted with me way beyond any covenant I could ever keep. That God loves me unconditionally because of the work of Jesus Christ on my behalf. When you take that grace into your heart, it becomes a shield that guards you against sex. I guarantee it. Nothing else works. Nothing else. Nothing else will work. It is the grace of God that will train you a single person and empower you to say no to worldly passions. This is sex, according to the Bible. If you need prayer for anything, after worship, after this praise time, there'll be some elders and some deacons and some leadership guys and gals. We'd love to pray for you because this is one of the biggest issues facing our country today. It's it. So Father, I thank you that sex is this great gift that you gave to us. And I pray that we as a church would guard it that we'd realize its explosive power to either launch us into the heavenlies or bomb us into hell. Help us, I pray. I pray for those in here that are struggling even this day. I pray that your grace would train them. I pray that you would fill them with a love and a power and a fullness that enables them to maintain the sacredness of sex and protect them from the repercussions that are hellish. So grace, may you train each one of us to say no to worldly passions. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.